Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about whether or not we should be wearing sweatpants while working at home. Also, should the church be trying to compete with Disney? And we might as well talk about the NFL draft. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. Happy Friday, as Brian Fromm loves to say. I do. Brian's favorite day of the week. Not even a close second. Is that true? Have we talked about that? Uh, of the work week, you know, I'd always prefer the Saturday, Sunday, but Friday. Love Friday, for sure. <laughs> for sure. You really, really are a big fan, of which I uh, don't disagree. If you want to find us on Facebook, you can do so at the Common Good Radio Show, and you can send us messages there if you have suggestions for the show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, a little subscribe rate review does really help us out a whole heap. And uh, we don't have to spend much time there, but you were outright giddy yesterday for the draft. Do you want to talk about, I mean, you stayed up, I'm assuming. So do you mean by not spend a lot of time? Do you mean just three segments instead of a full hour? (laughs) I'm just going to sign off and I'll, uh, I'll come back in an hour. I'll tell you what. I normally love the NFL draft, but the fact that we've been starved of all like real, like live sports, uh, I've got to be honest, not only did I stay up till five after 11 to see the end of the first round, but my uh, my 12 year old son did as well. We were both in our New York Giants jerseys. We took selfies. uh, He had his Giants hat and uh, it was uh, it did not disappoint. I do. I know a lot. Most people are probably like either. I had no idea the draft happened or that's so boring. Uh, I, you just have to give it for me. I really enjoy it. Giants got a good pick. The Bears did not have a pick, but they'll pick tonight in the second round. Right. Uh, your lion, your lions even did a sensible pick. So you we know, did okay. Dol- Dolphins came out all right. Cowboys did. did okay. Yeah, it was inter- It really was fascinating to watch, though, uh, because it was all done on Zoom, obviously, right. all remotely. Right. And so you got not only did you see all of these people's living rooms, which was fascinating, but like their kids were there or when the people got drafted, their moms or their girlfriend or their brother and sister, and it made for like. Most of the time, really endearing moments. There are a couple little awkward moments that were like kind of behind the scenes. So that was actually kind of fun, even though it was a little weird that it was in everybody's basements. Right. Okay. I want to ask you quickly about your Giants then. You you feel good about Thomas over Simmons? Uh, I do uh, because they need desperately offensive line help. I I did love Isaiah Simmons because that guy is a stud. Uh, But. Last year, you pick a quarterback first, the year before a running back, and they can't block anybody. So in the end, you got to go for the fat guy, right? Got to get the big <laughs> guy up front and uh, protect your quarterback. So I was good with it. I was good with it, although that Simmons guy is a freak. <laughs> he's, like the, he's like the fastest linebacker in the NFL right now, isn't he? I mean, he plays linebacker and safety and ran a 4-3-40. I mean, that's just absurd. So, yeah. There might come a day where we regret as Giants fans going, we could have had that guy, but uh, they got what they needed. So I'm good with it. I'm good with it. All right. So uh, there's a tweet that I'm not going to have time to get into, but we'll post this on the Facebook page. It's a thread. And he says, uh, as an epidemiologist, I'm amazed that the only thing that's discussed about COVID-19 and the lockdown is mortality. It's not just mortality, though. He talks about uh, pulmonary functions. He talks about uh, joint inflammation. He talks about infection. He talks about a whole bunch of other things. Again, we're not doctors, but it, it gave me an, a really interesting sense of like what we do tend to really highlight in the news and what maybe doesn't 
make the headlines or make the press. And we will post that again. I would love to hear from people, maybe people that have uh, medical experience. Cause I think it's, I just think it's a really interesting discussion, but this one, this other article out of the LA times was gaining all sorts of traction, <laughs> mostly like blowback. It said uh, enough with the work from home sweatpants dress like the adult you're getting paid to be. And the rest of the article has that same kind of snark. I don't know how much of it you want to read, but like, do you do you agree with this person's this author's general sentiment that uh, hey, I know we're working from home, but we still need to be we need to be stepping up our uh, our hygiene and our attire, or are you like fully on the other end or somewhere in between? You know, uh, so the guy is the deputy fashion editor of the Los right. Angeles Times, so I feel like he had a, he had to go he, he he had to go this lane here. I read the whole article. And uh, I don't agree with him. His whole point is like uh, dress at home as you would be for the office. So right. take a shower. He even says you should wear sh- nice shoes. Right. All this kind of stuff. Uh, th- this had a little bit of an OK Boomer feel to me, you know. <laughs> and it's right. So, uh, with that said, the one spot where I'm not sure that I completely disagree with him was hmm. with the whole advent of video conferencing. Hmm. Uh, that, that there is something that could be said, right? Uh, you and I, uh, maybe the church world's a little different from the business world, but I'd have to think if you're with clients or uh, in in a more formal setting of a business world, if you're on a Zoom call, you probably dress the same way you would have before, right? Like it probably is more important. Um, now, I do think there is something to routine about telling your mind it's time for work and I'm done right. with work. Right. Uh, so that much I get. Like most mornings, I still go take a shower before uh, before starting my, you know, get coming up to my room to kind of start my work day here. Sure. Um, although when I do need to admit today was not one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> no, no judgment, man. And so reading this article with that, like, uh, was was a little bit much. But uh, I don't agree with them. You know what? We're all working from home and we're all in this and you're at your house. So it, by and large, uh, I don't think so. What did you think? Well, he makes a couple of interesting points. One, you kind of touched on like the mental component of it. And I, I know a bunch of people who work from home anyway, like my photographer friend that I mentioned yesterday for a long while, he, he was waking up, working out and putting on a suit, even though he was wow. like, mostly editing, you know, photos and videos from his house. Like for him, it was in the same way, you know, I grew up homeschooling. And one of the things I loved about homeschooling was I could do it on the couch mm-hmm. in my bed. But we had all sorts of homeschool friends who parents bought like little desks from a thrift store and they had to like wake up and dress nice. So I, I have read a lot over the years about m- mentally kind of how that tricks your brain into productivity. The other thing that he was bringing up that I thought was interesting was the disrespect of not showering or dressing nice. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting from a, a younger generation person to, to kind of hang his hat on the respect argument, like, hey, right. come on, respect yourself, respect the team, respect your employer um, by not doing these things, by not paying attention. And again, part of some of the stuff he's referencing are like explicit T-shirts. That's not a great idea. Right. Period, especially in any kind of visual component. But I don't I don't know. I, I felt uh, like I landed much more lax than he did on this. And I did, too. And I've been I'm, I'm in Zoom meetings all day long. Not one of them have I hopped on. And like secretly thought like, oh, man, I can't believe he's wearing that. Like that hasn't even, <laughs> you know what I mean, there's there's other things in terms of like <laughs> Zoom etiquette, like, hey, mute your computer, man. Or, That's right. That's you know, some right. of that stuff is probably higher on my list. But I don't know. I was really 
curious, and I wonder, like, in the minute that we have left, like, what do you think this article is a microcosm of? Like, is it a is it a looks or fashion or appearance obsessed culture, or is it is it something different than that? I think it's different, although it is the fashion de- deputy director, right? Right. But even the part he talks about where people are doing Zoom calls with like a nice shirt with like shorts on or sweatpants on where nobody right. can see. Right. I think this guy is probably, uh, if I could read between the lines here, I think he says it's kind of like you dress for uh, you dress for success, right? Like I think he's saying as we get sloppy with our dress, we're going to get sloppy with our work. We're going to get sloppy with our effort. Like it all is tied in. So my guess is, especially being the fashion editor, he would say uh, – as you dress for work, you're going to work more diligently. You're going to work better. You're going to show the other people respect that you're still working hard and that you still take mm-hmm. this seriously. If I had to guess, that's what's going on here. I'm not sure I buy that. But to be honest with you, as you've seen, I'm a pretty casual dresser uh, right. <laughs> as in general. So maybe I'm the wrong person to answer that one. Well, and I do think the routine piece is really important, too, because I've heard other like I just listened to a commencement speech where. It was uh, an army sergeant. He was saying one of the most important things you can do is to begin your day by making your bed. Like something about the discipline of like accomplishing something, being mindful of something, taking pride in your space, like that ritual. And he, you know, teased it out for 45 minutes or whatever. But that's something that I'm uh, I'm interested in. We've talked a lot about how our rhythms have all been kind of thrown out of whack. And while I don't necessarily agree with the general thrust of this article, I think I mean, there's some interesting things to consider. I'm not going to adopt any of them wholesale, but we'd love to know what you think. <laughs> this article is over at the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Just uh, leave a comment, weigh in. What would you change? What would you leave out? And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Coming up next from the Gospel Coalition, uh, churches, you do not have to compete with Disney+. Plus. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Yo, 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 yo. What is up, everybody? Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I don't think I've ever started a segment like that in my you life. Did that cause, you only did that because it's Friday. That's what. Is that, that what it Friday is? Yeah. I, I, just, I just get real lax on Fridays, man. I, <laughs> probably too lax. I should probably never do that again. Uh, if you would like to find us, there's a couple of options. You can go to Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can send us a message there. We're also a podcast, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, and on Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. And this is a conversation that Brian and I have had, I mean, probably four or five times this last five or six weeks. Yeah. Churches, you don't have to compete with Disney+. Plus. This is out of the Gospel Coalition. But before we do that, Brian's going to tell you about something cool the station is doing. Yeah, during the coronavirus pandemic, we know that so many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. And we also know, though, that there are still many businesses out there that are trying to stay open and serve the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form and we'll be compiling all of that information and sharing it with our listeners. Totally free, no catch. Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Brian, affirm me. I just mean this with all sincerity. <laughs> Go ahead. There's a tear rolling down my cheek right now. <laughs> I've never, I've never been so moved by a read in my entire life, and I, I thank you. If that You're setting the played, bar high for yourself. <laughs> I'd like to play that at my son's graduation. About the. <laughs> <laughs> That's just exquisite. 
someday, someday when they lay me to rest, someday. my tombstone, my tombstone is just going to be that that read right there. Oh God, <laughs> you went dark. Out. That's why I went graduation. Anyway, um, all right. So, so out of the Gospel Coalition headline says, "Churches, you don't have to compete with Disney Plus." I want to just read the first yeah. couple of paragraphs. It's it's pretty good though, and you and I have talked about this a number of times. But he, here's how the article begins says, it happened so suddenly. In early March, churches in the United States were doing their regular worship services and carrying on other events as usual. Many had already begun planning and promoting Easter services. By the end of March, all those services and plans had radically changed. Church buildings and meeting spaces now remain empty for the immediate future as churches have moved to gathering online. I'm thankful we have the technology to communicate and virtually gather, but we shouldn't think this technology can fully substitute for our in-person meetings. I'm concerned as to how quickly we've let the technology do more than facilitate our church interactions. Overnight, churches pumped out tons of online content, pushing out multiple videos for people to watch throughout the day. You could spend all day on Facebook or Instagram, quote, going to church as you hop from video to video. But as the saying goes, the medium is the message. Should the church so quickly and reflexively reorient itself around the medium of the Internet and social media in particular, a medium that demands lots of content geared towards immediate gratification? Is the church now just another content provider in a sea of online resources? As we figure out how we want to do church online in this odd season, let's not fall into the trap of thinking people need more stuff to passively consume. Hmm. Worship sets that invite comparisons to music videos or late night talk shows won't serve us well in the long run. No church's budget will ever be able to out plus Disney plus, which is that's like a mic drop line. Yeah. Do you feel any of that so far? Like the the pressure to uh, look like this church or execute like that church or you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but I'd love to know how you're interacting with that. Yeah, I would say I feel a little less. The first week or two when everybody was just running so hard because of the move, you know, like swung that pendulum so far. Right. uh, I did feel this need of like, oh, my gosh, I should make another video to put on Facebook. I should do this. It needs like I did feel that I still feel that a little bit. But but now I feel like I and our church have settled into a better rhythm for how we'll do it and how we'll be. But, yeah, certainly in the beginning, it was like. Oh my gosh, how many, how many like encouragement videos should I be making? Do I need to do one every day? Do we need to have prayer time and Bible study and all this stuff that we weren't doing online before? Uh, felt like, uh, there, there felt like this pressure early on. I would say that's dissipated a little bit as we've all gotten more used to it. Yeah, I think that's probably common. Here's how the article continues. It says, remember, what makes us the church is that we are saved by and united together in Jesus. We are uniquely his body connected to one another in him connection sustained and nurtured through our embodied life together. The internet can help us maintain these connections, but in a limited way, but it can't and won't ever fully substitute for them. It's good and even sanctifying for us to lament the loss. At the same time, we affirm that because the church forever belongs to the Lord, we can still carry out his mission. The gates of hell will still fall before the church, no matter our current challenges. That means we can and should readjust, but let's do so in a way that centers our connection to each other as members of the church. This means putting as much energy as possible in facilitating member-to-member interaction and connection, releasing the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4. Remembering church leaders, we serve a royal priesthood, First Peter 2, and perhaps like never before, the world needs faithful representations of our Lord. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. God already assembled the church in a way that allows members to care directly for one another and to extend care to their neighbors. So, Again, I li- I like the balance here. He's not he's not looking to condemn technology outright. He's not saying 
social media is the devil, which I have heard people say. And, right. that, and for some people, they, you know, if that's their conviction, then so be it. Um, but part of what he says in this last, this last section is how do we harness technology for a greater good and not see technology as like the replacement for it, which is something that I've not heard anybody say outright, but sometimes the way that I hear church leaders talk, they're like, man, let's just do it like this from now on. I'm like, oh, man, I don't. Yeah. I think this is deeper than just simply a social thing. Like, oh, I like being around people. I think that there's something deeply sacred and spiritual to like the embodied presence and, and spending physical time together, which we obviously can't do right now. Yeah, I, I really have enjoyed um seeing people in our church connecting with each other, you know, you can kind of see it on Facebook or something. Um, I think that's what people are longing for. The author here, Vernon Pierre said, perhaps this is a season to lean into low tech way of doing things through the old friend, the phone call, uh, mm. calling members and staying up on one another. Uh, and so I do think uh, we've talked about this often in the last couple of weeks that, that we're missing the point if we as pastors and as churches are putting all of our energy into like, hey, we got to make Sunday morning look awesome uh, right. online now, or we've got to shoot every video and make it all great. All those things are important. No one's saying those things are bad. Right. Um, but we can't take for granted the person to person care and enabling our people, not just through the leader, but the people within the church to be the church. Right. And, uh, and I, and so I think this is a really good reminder of that, that uh, this, uh, that this pastor Vernon Pierre uh, gives us. Well, and I think too, it's important not just to keep those things in mind, but to like make proactive steps toward, like I'm realizing how much in our like open office context is lacking from my life. Not because there were like planned meetings that I can't have face to face with people. It's like, Oh, it was all that in between time where someone was walking to the copier, but they saw a book on my desk and they asked about it. And we had like a really great five minute conversation about a topic like that's not happening, which is tricky. One of the things that I've appreciated about our team. So like on Fridays, what we've been doing is just blocking out like a 90 minute, no agenda. Anyone can pop in or leave whenever they want. We're just going to connect. We're just going to hang out. And it's, Obviously not the same, yep. but yep. like I'm having to be really uh, intentional and to remember, hey, hey, call some people from your church or your team, even if you don't have anything to talk to them about. Like that via phone call can feel really weird because historically the only reason you call someone right. is because you have something to tell them or you have something to ask them. And the idea of just calling someone to say hi Maybe that's not more normal for some people. That's not necessarily a part of my rhythm. And I'm trying to be more intentional about, I mean, this isn't great, but even text messages. Hey, just thinking about you today. You yeah. don't have to respond. I'm not looking for prayer requests. If you could share them if you want to, but just like little touch points of like, Hey, I was just, uh, I was thinking about you. And, and I, uh, I think those things are a little helpful. Yeah. I think in some ways we just have to lean into the simplicity of how things are right now. Right. Like right. Yeah. don't overcomplicate it. Who are the people that you can reach out to and right. go ahead and do it? Like you said, if you're a phone person, a text, an email, face, whatever, yeah. um, but not get lost in all the other stuff that then when we come back, we end up, you know what I've really, uh, we'll close with this. Uh, what, what I, what has really stuck with me is an interview you and I did with Mark Job at the beginning of this, when he said, what are we going to wish at the end of this that we'd spend our time doing? Uh, right. And for me, it's all about exactly what we're talking about here. If I feel like we have cared for each other really well and we've stayed close and connected, then I will feel like this has been uh, not a success, but we've done what we needed to do in this time. Right, right. That's a good word, man. Coming up next, here's an interesting article out of Vice. 
The headline says, you'll probably forget what it was like to live through a pandemic. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Just loving this Friday. I don't. Is there more uh, wiffle ball league coming this weekend? Oh, no doubt. As long as the rain stays out. I did lose the last game, but uh, I think, yeah, wiffle ball. Is the, what is your record right now with your son? Uh, I'm one in five. And <laughs> the last game was the most disappointing. I won't get too far into it, but it was I was up last. It was bases loaded. I'm down two with only one out. And wiffle ball, you don't normally make outs in a row. And my next two guys, I popped out and lost the game. Man, I'm sorry. Do you need a friend? Can I tell you, this is really bad. I was legitimately mad. Like I didn't show him, but I told my wife, I go, I'm really bothered that I lost that game. <laughs> she was like, I'm bothered that you're bothered. You- <laughs> yes, exactly. She was like, maybe you should stop with a wall. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a wise, that's a wise woman right there. Uh, all right. So I mentioned this uh, headline out of vice it says you'll probably forget what it was like to live through a pandemic. The subheading is memory researchers say these months will eventually become a blur for those of us isolating at home. So I want to talk about memory and what we actually hold on to or not. But real quickly, I want to talk about Thrivent Financial. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. I've been a Thrivent member for like seven years. It's a Fortune 500 not-for-profit. They've been around more than a century. Uh, two things, though. If you're looking for a career change, I'd highly, highly recommend checking them out. You can go to Thrivent.com slash careers. Also, though, they're hosting a bunch of webinars that uh, are really meant to serve us as we're caught in this weird space and time. Things like stress or how to be productive or how to kind of stay in a place of joy and not despair. So they got like four or five coming up in the next week or so. We're posting all of that stuff on our Facebook page. If you want to know more, you can also go to thriving.com to learn more. And uh, I highly recommend that you do. All right. So this article out of vice by Shayla love says, you'll probably forget what it was like to live through a pandemic. What's, what's going on here? Yeah, it begins by talking about like normal memories, but then it says there are memories from people who live through the capital B big historical events, right? World War II, Vietnam, Cultural Revolution in China, you know, add 9-11 and those types of things to it. Uh, the scenes and experience stuck in their minds decade later. And then she goes on to say, as we experience a global pandemic, it's odd to realize that we're currently living through a big historical event. We'll be telling our children about it documenting it in history textbooks and swapping our shared experiences like your kids who won't remember this probably are going to learn about it in school. Right. Like that's a little weird to think about right. um, moments of each day feel unforgettable, uh, the death count and all that stuff. But she says, but what exactly uh, what exactly will we remember years from now? The unnerving un- truth is that we may not remember much because we never do. And that's not the way memory works. We don't remember each minute or each day or each week. We forget people, places, and events. And so I'll pause there because it's going to get into more. But basically, it's saying uh, that uh, that we don't remember the way we think we remember, right? Like we think we remember detail by detail, who was where, what exactly happened. And the point being is that's not exactly how it works. So even a year from now, two years from now, we might think back on this time and be like, well, wasn't it like this and get it wrong? It's really weird, I think. And really the point of this is how our memory works. And I like how, it, okay, I mentioned here in 1890, psychologist William James wrote that emotional events have such a huge effect on our minds, they, quote, almost leave a scar upon the cerebral tissues. But for many of us, especially those isolating at home, memory researchers say it's more likely that it will become a blur. 
Those on the front lines, like healthcare workers, will remember it differently. They'll witness the toll on human life, um, which is, I think, obvious. The people mm-hmm. that are kind of frontline workers right now it says, for those of us uh, whose lives remain unscathed, those who have the privilege of waiting out the weeks without much daily variety, this stretched out quote historical event isn't conducive to creating sharp, defined memories. Despite having conscious awareness of each moment now, a lot of it will slip away. Recognizing that most of what's happening will eventually be buried in the recesses of our brain might serve as a small comfort that at some point in the future, some of us will be free from this time period. Some of us will have the luxury of saying with a little strain, remember when? Mm. I think is fascinating because it, it is it all does seem really visceral and present right now. But they make a good point, though. Like you and I aren't going to have like those same dramatic moments that somebody who's working in a hospital right now will. Like we're right. just sort of like literally somebody mentioned yesterday how many weeks it's been, and it just didn't sound right to me. Like that yeah. can't be right. And then we like did the math, and I was like, holy cow! Like it just sort of even still being in it has felt like a blur, and I've struggled to remember what was it like when we started. How did we make that announcement? When did we? And that wasn't even that long ago. So I, I think the article makes some good points about how this will likely for the vast majority of us end up being more like a blur. Yeah. As she says, we may remember parts of our experience and forget others retaining the most emotionally charged details, but obscuring the rest. If an event is more neutral, a person could remember each detail the same way. If it's an emotional one, they remember the parts that are most emotional forgetting peripheral details. And, uh, it's an interesting point because a lot of us, uh, this is such a big historical deal that's going on. Like I said, you know, our kids and grandkids are going to learn about this one day in school. But for most of us, it hasn't been that life changing other than we're in our houses. Right. Like right. Uh, and, and so I think that's what this author is getting at, too. Obviously, if you're sick or you lose a loved one or, you know, a lot of people who've died or you lost your job like those people will have much more defined memories from this. Uh, but for us, yeah, I could see a year from now being like, yeah, I don't even remember what we did during that whole quarantine time <laughs> yeah, right. and, and trying to figure it out. Uh, it's an interesting article. Yeah, the article goes on to say in, 2000, uh, in a 2003 study led by Kathy Pezdek, a cognitive psychologist at Claremont Graduate University in California, the people who lived in New York during 9-11 had the most accurate memories of the events that took place, but the worst autobiographical, autobiographical recall, memories about themselves and their daily lives and perceptions during the same period, compared to college students from California and Hawaii. So just to make that clear, the people who lived in New York during 9-11 had the most accurate memories of the events that took place, but the worst autobiographical recall. So literally people that lived in California and Hawaii uh, had, a, had a better sense of that. So here's how some of it's explained. Um, if you see someone holding a gun, maybe you'll remember the gun in exquisite detail, but have no idea what the color was of the building, says Daniela Scheiler, a neuroscientist who studies memory at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. This explains how people can forget details you wouldn't expect them to. Schiller's father who lived during the Holocaust, once watched a trial of Nazis being prosecuted. Lawyers asked an older woman how she washed her clothes at the camps, and she couldn't remember. My father said after he thought about it, uh, and he didn't remember either. You wouldn't remember a lot of those things, Schiller said. With emotion, it's almost like changing the focus of a camera. Mm. I feel like I want to take a deeper dive into that notion because I don't – that's the first I've ever really heard that analogy. And I'm wondering, Brian, in the last minute or so we have left – Yep. In light of that, if it's true that the vast majority of us are probably not going to hold on to a lot of details of this 20 years from now, 
what instruction would you give to people now? Like what is, what is the takeaway from that learning you think? Yeah. To keep that, that camera metaphor going, you know, take some snapshots, you know, maybe journal, maybe this is a good time to journal mm-hmm. through this of memories. And uh, I've seen some people putting things on Facebook. So they're like, so now a year from now, I'll remember what we were doing. Um, so maybe this is a time to write things down to save some newspapers or some articles or whatever else, you know, uh, one last thing about memory. Do you ever listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast revisionist oh, yeah. history? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the one he did about Brian Williams and memory? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating. If anybody wants to do a deeper dive into this, that will blow your mind. Listen to that one. Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history about Brian Williams. But it gets into this, that we don't remember the way we think we remember. So to answer your question, maybe do some things uh, that will that will jog your memory a year from now uh, when you go back and read them. Right. I know my, my oldest daughter's keeping a journal through this, and I think it's a great idea. It will it will serve later on to be able to go back and go, oh, that's how it was. And the article is much, much longer. That's on our yes. Facebook page. I highly encourage you to read it. Go listen to the podcast that Brian mentioned. It's it's brilliant. And I think that's a good suggestion, man. I'm thinking of doing something like that. I started an email account where I'm just emailing this particular account uh, at, with things as they happen. I'm not a very good journaler, but I'm at my computer a lot. So I'll just send emails to this private account that I can go back and look at. And That's a great idea. Like, that's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see if it actually is if I stay up with it. <laughs> well, well, coming up next, we've been uh, featuring a Judson podcast every day this week. And John Perrine is the guest host of this Judson Daily podcast in a series called Meaning Making in the Midst of Pandemic. And today's episode is called The One Worth Suffering For. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us numerous places on facebook the common good radio show and we post all of our articles there you can weigh in there's a lot of lively discussion happening there you can also leave us a message if you have ideas for a topic or a show or an interview you can also review that page that does help us out a whole lot you can also get the podcast wherever it is you get podcast reviewing that helps a whole lot and we're on twitter and instagram at common good talk and i've loved i've loved this segment so every day this week We've been featuring the Judson Daily Podcast. Judson is my alma mater. Chris Lash is leading that charge there. And he's had a featured guest uh, every day this week in a series that he calls Meaning Making in the Midst of Pandemic. His name is John Perrine, and he's brilliant. And today's episode is called The One Worth Suffering For. Take a listen. Hello, Judson family. This once again is John Perrine coming to you with the final episode this week on a series we've been running called Meaning Making in the Midst of a Pandemic. So this morning, I want to take us into the heart of meaning, really the great center where meaning is either found or it's lost. And that center is this. What will we do about suffering in our life? As I'm sure you know, Suffering can be the great disruptor of meaning. In fact, that is precisely why this series feels so urgent and relevant in the midst of a pandemic. Pandemics force us to confront suffering on a new, unimagined-before scale, death tolls racking up every day. People on their own, in a hospital, separated from family, and suffering unto death. One of the things that surprises us about suffering in our current cultural moment, is what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. And what Charles Taylor means by this 
is that we've been told culturally that meaning is to be found imminently within or around ourself. So for many of us, meaning becomes either the degree that we're getting or maybe meaning is a relationship that we're in, a dating relationship, a group of friends that we enjoy hanging out with. Or maybe meaning leans into something else, something like money or status or art or creativity. Whatever that source of meaning is, though, what happens in the imminent frame is that when that source inevitably lets us down, either the money runs out, a relationship surprises or hurts us, a job that we once looked to for security is taken from us, suddenly we now no longer have any resources with which to gather more meaning. That imminent frame has constricted us so that now there's no other meaning to be had. Yet the Bible talks about a life that looks beyond the imminent frame to one in which suffering can actually become a part of the meaning for which you're living. There's this really beautiful and haunting story that comes to us in the book of Acts, specifically chapter 9. I always loved this story, and yet I was reading it closely again, and I was surprised by the wording of this particular story. In Acts 9, Saul, the famed persecutor of Christianity, is confronted by a blinding light. In essence, Saul is disrupted. His current life is finding meaning and value within the very narrow focus of his religion, specifically in persecuting this new sect called Christians. And yet stunningly in this blinding encounter, Saul hears from Jesus himself, who asks Saul why he is persecuting, that is causing suffering to Christ. I mean, the the hauntingness of this moment clearly stands out in Saul's memory because he will tell it over and over again throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But the line that really got me as I was reading this story closely again is actually the interaction that takes place between Ananias and the Lord. Now, Ananias is a devout Christian living in Damascus who suddenly receives this vision. The Lord comes to him, says, Saul, the famed persecutor of the church, who's now blind from this searing vision, has come to Damascus. And Ananias is meant to go to Saul to pray for him, and in praying for him, Saul's blindness will be lifted. Understandably, Ananias is a little intimidated by such a request from the Lord. In fact, Ananias is probably thinking about all of the Christians that Saul has already thrown into prison. Perhaps Ananias even is remembering Stephen was violently stoned, he can't help but wonder, is such a fate waiting for me if I help this Saul out? So Ananias is going to say in verse 13 of chapter 9, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. But here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And Aeneas is just checking in on the facts with the Lord, making sure that the Lord understands the stakes of what he's asking Ananias to do. And yet the Lord is going to say this, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings 
and the children for Israel. Now here's the line that really caught me off guard. The Lord says this to Ananias, For I will show him just how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You think about Paul's life. He would indeed go on to suffer. In fact, Paul in the book of Corinthians is going to list out the series of violent tribulations he's gone through. Shipwrecks, imprisonments, beatings, lashings multiple times, stoned several occasions, near death. I mean, there almost is this irony that all the suffering Saul had enacted on Christians would now be born upon Paul's converted body. And here's the beauty in the meditation I want to offer you today. Paul would embrace all of it because he found the one worth suffering for. In fact, he met him on that road, saw him, heard him, and understood in that blinding light that Jesus had taken all of his suffering upon himself. This is the hope of the Christian message, which no other source of meaning can offer you. No matter how much suffering you endure, all of your suffering was taken up and borne willingly by your Lord on that cross. So Paul indeed would be set aside to suffer for the sake of Christ. But as I sit here with you in your headphones, on your walk, wherever it is that you're listening to this, I wonder, have you seen in this pandemic the one worth suffering for? Have you seen Christ? Has Christ appeared to you? Have you caught a glimpse of your suffering Savior who invites you to bear suffering for his name? This is why the Christians of the early church would enter into plagues and pandemics themselves as agents of healing and grace. They saw that one had suffered for them, and they now could suffer all things for his sake. Friends, if you look to any other source of meaning, in fact, even if friendships, creativity, these beautiful gifts from the Bible we've been exploring the past few days, even these, if done on your own, will let you down. They will inevitably be disrupted by suffering. Now, friends, I know that many of you are, in fact, suffering right now. That the loneliness, the heartache, perhaps the lost jobs, time at home, family breakdown, whatever it is, that there's been immense suffering. Perhaps you even bodily have suffered. You've been suffering from the coronavirus or you know someone who has suffered. But if you see Christ, if you encounter him in a blinding light, just as Paul did, you will find a meaning worth suffering for. And indeed, that meaning will be stronger than any other meaning that any other source could offer to you. So I want to close with one last meditation for you. If you're just taking a deep breath, Breathe out. 
the Lord of heaven has come to bear your suffering in his body. Jesus Christ looks to you and asks, Will you now suffer for my name? As you breathe in, receive the gift of God's Spirit that will strengthen and equip you to bear all sufferings, both large and small, and who will be with you to guide you to whatever's waiting for you on the other side of this pandemic. Friends, it's been a privilege to be with you this week. Grace and peace. We'll see you again soon. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about social media and the always brilliant Jeff Holzklaw will be joining us. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone welcome back so glad you came back if you're just joining us i uh, can't encourage you enough to head over to the podcast one of the benefits of the podcast i'm told is you can listen to our voices at twice the speed and uh, <laughs> i'm not quite sure if i should be like encouraged or insulted either way uh we're grateful for those of you who do listen via the podcast if you wouldn't mind subscribing rating and reviewing all of that does help us out a whole lot we're also on facebook the common good radio show that's where we post all of our articles, even stuff we don't talk about. You can send us a message if you want. If you're reading the news or you hear someone speaking or you listen to a podcast and you think they'd be a good guest, please, please, please. We want this show to serve you all well. So whatever feedback you have really does help us out a whole lot. Plus, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And a couple of articles that I found, they are loosely connected. We'll see exactly how connected they are in a moment. But uh, Scott McKnight, Dr. Scott McKnight, brilliant, brilliant man. He was uh, gracious enough to help us out with our sermon last weekend a little bit. And he has a, a blog that's featured on Christianity Today called Jesus Creed. And he's often inviting like guest writers. And mm-hmm. this particular guest writer, Kelly Edmonston, wrote this headline, What to do with our fears? Christian faith comes into play when fear becomes present. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this article? Yeah, she starts it by talking a lot about fear, but it feels like right in the middle of the article, she gets at the crux of the issue. She says, anyone who says they have no fear during this time is either the healthiest and most deeply centered person on the planet. She said, Richard Rohr, maybe, (laughs) or, (laughs) or they are living with a smidge of denial. We have legitimate reasons to fear. And this has me asking the question, what do we do with our fear? We can stuff it down and ignore it. We can try and numb it with food, alcohol, working out, shopping, or binging Tiger King. We can let it morph into anger and spill out onto those around us. We can grasp for control in the midst of it, allowing OCD behaviors to become how we manage, or we can take it to God. And what does that look like? Consider the example of Paul, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, uh, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds mm. in Christ Jesus. She goes on to say, Paul's writing to a church that is anxious, that is fearful. Uh, mm. They're wondering, will they be killed? Will their children be killed? Uh, and so uh, she says uh, a couple observations. And then she basically closes by saying, this is what I'm doing these days. And I invite you to join me. Two things. One. In the midst of fear and anxiety, treat yourself the way Paul treated the Christians at Philippi. 
Talk to yourself the way you would talk to your best and dearest loved one. And secondly, lay out your request before God in intimate detail. In this place, ask God, God, where are you in this? What is the truth in the midst of this fear? And so I think this article really gets at it, man. Like, A, we should all just acknowledge it's a fearful and anxious time, even as it gets more normal to live like this. Yeah. Uh, and two, then, some good instruction here about what then, once we admit we're, we have fear, what do we do with that fear? Yeah, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe more, that uh, this passage here in Philippians consistently is like the most Googled, most highlighted yeah. passage in the entire Bible. You, we learned that from Kindle. We learned that from a whole lot of other, from Google, from other outside resources. And one of the things that I appreciate, she's talking like you mentioned, that part of what they're worrying about is, will they be killed? Will their children be killed? Will they be attacked? Will they be ostracized? Will they lose their jobs or friendships? And here's some of her observations that she makes about that passage that I think are really timely for us. One, these are not silly things to worry about. The Christians, uh, as well as Paul, have genuine concern over things that really matter, which to what you were just saying, like these are things worth, you know, being concerned about. Number two, it's important to note that Paul's tone is gentle as he uh, commands the Christians to pray. He's not angry or frustrated the way that we often treat ourselves in the midst of fear and anxiety. And number three, Paul invites the Christians to do as he does to pray, but to pray in a certain way. He instructs them to present the request to God in the face of their worst nightmares coming true, to pray in a way that tells God all the details of their requests. In other words, Paul is saying, lay it all out, friend, and don't leave anything out. Tell God about every fear and every anxiety. Play out every worst case scenario you have and do this exercise with God before God and in God's presence. See what God will say and do as you present your fears to God. I've never heard that really, really common passage explained right. quite that way. And I thought, I thought that was really helpful. This yeah. other article out of Relevant talks about social media. And you found, I think, a really important correlation between these, these two articles. What's this uh, Relevant article saying? Yeah, I think her name's Katie Epling. She talks about it's called the social media silencing our souls during the pandemic. And what she said here is uh, she starts by talking about when her head hits the pillow, her brain springs into action, you know, and starts talking about her fears and her worries. What if my dad catches COVID-19 in the hospital? How am I going to homeschool three kids? And my stomach churned. I began to spiral through worry and frustration until I cut it short. She said, I can't think about this anymore. So I grabbed my phone. And then she said, before I knew it, an hour had passed, an hour of mm. catching up on Facebook, scrolling through Instagram, even a few rounds of wordscapes. Uh, when I could no longer hold my eyes open, I gave up and fell asleep to the sound of my favorite podcast. But I wasn't actually at peace, mm. just distracted. And I just the, painting that picture guilty as charged on that one right. uh, that she's saying social media and all these things, especially now when we have these fears and we have these anxieties, uh, be careful when you just fill all of that with just uh, distraction and things to take your mind off of it instead of that, not all the time, right? Sometimes we need to be able to turn our mind off, but, sure. but, but instead of always just distracting and pushing them away, sometimes we need to sit in our fear. Sometimes we need that space. Sometimes we need that silence. And she's saying for her and probably true for a lot of us, things like social media just serve as a distraction and a numbing agent right. uh, to never really deal with what's going on around us. Well, and she has two kind of categories that she addresses here. One, numbing our pain. And secondly, the importance of boredom. She says, I'm not saying technology is solely responsible for our avoidance of negative emotions. We have long sought after ways to escape our realities, whether through socially acceptable means like overeating and shopping or more dangerous means like drugs and alcohol. 
But with a phone in the hands of just about everyone, and Pew Research found that 96% of Americans own a cell phone of some kind, Wow. Uh, 81% being smartphones, technology has quickly become the easiest and most acceptable way to numb our pain. Nir Eyal, author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, writes, Feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. We don't even think about it anymore. We simply reach for the nearest device and lose ourselves in our technology, drowning our sorrows in the dopamine boosts we get from scrolling through our newsfeed, which is a big deal. She goes on and says, why is that a bad thing? Isn't distracting ourselves better than getting swallowed up by our concerns? While distraction can be an effective coping mechanism when used in moderation, I worry we're actually sacrificing something significant when we rely on our devices to numb our pain, our relationship with our Lord. talks about uh, David in Psalm 6. I'm weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. In fact, the Psalms are laden with worries and fears and troubles. Exactly what you're saying, Brian. And where do these concerns lead the psalmist? To the only one who can offer true help. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And then I love this quote. I've used this in countless sermons. George Herbert once wrote, storms make oaks take deeper roots. Hmm. When storms of life come, we can be knocked off our foundation or we can sink our roots in deeper. We can choose to abide in Christ, John 15, or we can seek the quick fix of technology, which prevents us from sitting with our problems and stunts our emotional and spiritual growth. I think that is so well-written. And I'd, lo- I'd love for you briefly in the minute and a half we have left to talk about this other peg that she addresses, the, the boredom piece. Yeah, she says, it isn't only our pain that we numb, but any emotion we perceive as negative, including boredom. We listen to podcasts while we drive. We scroll through social media. It's like she's in my life right now. Uh, (laughs) We fill every waking moment with media and noise. We just refuse to be bored. And again, we rob ourselves of important opportunities. She says, boredom was designed by God to allow our brains to work. When we are bored, our minds get creative. We process, we come up with ideas, and we allow space for God to speak to us. Uh, Being still with yourself can give access to all sorts of ideas and musings that wouldn't otherwise occur. And so it's this concept of like, we just, we we put so much noise and so much distraction and we're so much like we don't ever want our kids or ourselves to become bored. But her point is boredom is often where creativity comes from and things come from. And so uh, when we fill that void just with kind of mind numbing social media or other things, she says we're right. robbing ourselves. Yeah. And she, we don't have time to get to it, but uh, I would encourage you to read this whole article because right. here are some of the, some of the suggestions that she kind of lays out one inviting silence in number two, creating intentional rhythms, which we all know don't happen accidentally. Right. And three sitting with your feelings. And then lastly, uh, letting your soul cry out. And she kind of lays out exactly how to do that. And I, I thought this was not only uh, convicting, but offered, I think, good solutions that are achievable. Like you don't have to be some mystic or some, you know, prolific journaler. Like I'm a terrible journaler. And every time mm-hmm. someone suggests journaling, I'm always like, ah, I wish. <laughs> like, I, I want to. I'm just terrible at it. So, again, I would highly encourage you to read both those articles. This one's called Is Social Media Silencing Our Souls During the Pandemic? That is on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, and we would love to know what all of you think. Coming up next, though, a guest I'm really, really excited about. His name is Jeff Holsclaw. He's a pastor and an author and a professor and a podcast host, 
And we've referenced him a couple of times, even just this week on the show. Right. He's going to stick around for two segments, uh, and I'm really looking forward to that. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, wherever it is you get podcasts, and on Twitter and Instagram, at Common Good Talk. And those are great places to interact or make suggestions for future shows or segments or topics. We would love for this show to serve you really well. And one of the things that we really love doing, particularly in these last four or five weeks, is to invite other voices, other guests to kind of weigh in on this bizarre cultural moment we're having right now. And we actually referenced Dr. Jeff Holsclaw a little earlier in the week in a post that he shared on Facebook. And he is here with us now. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And just to be clear, I'm not that kind of doctor. doctor, (laughs) The doctor of the spirit or of the scriptures or of anything else besides the actual body. So I cannot help you or anyone know how to survive. (laughs) That's that's good to know because my next question was about disinfectants. So I'll scrap that. Um, I I use them everywhere, inside and outside. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like my house not my body right yeah. right <laughs> touche my house. Uh, okay so why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience in uh, whatever way you see fit yeah i am uh, a professional christian but also a person <laughs> but also a, a personal christian right so i'm a pastor i'm a a, a doctorate I, I got a phd in theology i teach at northern seminary um, and some other places. Uh, I currently live in Grand Rapids, but I've ministered in the northwest suburbs of Chicagoland for wow. about 17 years. So I'm glad to be on a show that's like in Chicago again. But yeah, I'm man. in Grand Rapids now, um, pastoring at a church. And then my wife and I just wrote a book all about God being with us. Um, and so that's the stuff I love talking about is how is God with us in all these different situations. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking of situations, Jeff, I'm curious. We've been asking everyone coming on as a pastor, as a professor. Uh, what have these last couple of weeks uh, been like for you with all the changes that have been going on in our culture uh, for each of us? Well, I think um, we were I'm kind of like a, an active kind of go getter. So I love rising to a challenge. But I mm. actually just this morning, I kind of woke up and I was like, I am done. Like all my <laughs> All my transition energy, all my like it's a new thing energy, all my let's survive the crisis energy is just like, oh, I'm done. Like, what are we, four, five, six weeks into all this? Right. And that, so, yeah, so I think that there's, a, so it's like all those people with the startup energy, like we're all done. All the people mm-hmm. without startup energy were already, already done. Right. right. So now, right. now it's just kind of like, okay, we're, you know, and I'm pretty like emotionally, I wouldn't say emotionally disconnected, but I'm pretty buoyant. Like I kind of, hmm. I, I kind of live on the good vibes and, but I'm kind of coming to the place of like, yeah, this is kind of a collective trauma that we as pastors and churches are going to like need to tend to for a long time. Like we yeah, are right. There's, there's, you know, there's kind of wounds. Like I, I kind of shared in our church service on Sunday, um, which was live streamed and all, which we'll get to in a mm-hmm. second, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, just saying like, you know, all this stuff is turning up past hurts and abuses and neglects and abandonments and people in all sorts of different ways. And, Hmm. I don't know. It's just really been hitting me like this is, yeah. Even if the economy starts soon, even if we find a vaccine soon, there's going to be, so that's kind of where I'm at today. Yeah. So could you, yeah. Could you speak to that a little more? Because I think that's a really interesting notion. A lot of, a lot of the strategies that I've seen, at least on social media have been, how do we deal with this like current thing? But very few people seem to be writing about 
how do I deal with all the stuff this is going to inevitably churn up or already has churned up? You're a pastor and a theologian. Like, what are some ways that you would encourage or advise people to like navigate those tricky waters? Oh man, well, I just started thinking about it this morning. So, uh, <laughs> well, I think uh, you know, and I'm not like a therapist, um, right? I'm trained or you know, and I just was talking to a friend who like studies traumatology, and I was like, oh, I should probably learn about that. Hmm. Uh, but I think. People process um, emotions and process trauma at different speeds, you know, so like if you're familiar with grief and recovery and things like that, you know, like people process these things at different uh, speeds, Uh, they experience them with different situations will kind of set them off. And so you could have, um, you know, some congregants are going to be like on a real up day, you know, in a couple Mm of weeks, and then others are just going to be like on a real low and it's just going to be really hard and it's going to take a lot of compassion and presence to really track with people kind of where they're at without making them feel bad for being where they're at, whether it's up or down. And that's where I think it's the really tricky thing is how do you not shame people for feeling too happy if they are happy right now? Right. Or right. For, for being too sad. If they are sad, yeah. it's just like, wow, that's like, we're all in so many different places. Um, and so my main kind of question um, is like, are we growing in our own capacity, emotional, spiritual capacities to kind of be with people in all those different situations? So we're all kind of getting a, crash course in um yeah emotional training i guess i don't know yeah right right let's talk about the church a little bit uh what are you enjoying in the season that maybe you're surprised that you enjoyed as a pastor and where do your frustrations lie with all of this newness of church right now oh man i that's a good question. I don't know if I'm really enjoying a lot of things. Right now. <laughs> I enjoyed, so, you know, like five of us got together and did like a pre-recording for Easter. And then we did like kind of a live segment. You know, I just, I really enjoy anytime being with someone else. I mean, I love my family. Yeah. Just worshiping <laughs> in person with some other people. Uh, and then, you know, broadcasting that to the rest of the church. That was just super meaningful. And it's just like, I really, I think all of us are really just craving whenever yeah. we get the, the, right. that connection. And, uh, just thinking, you know, especially about single people who are just not, they don't have the physical touch, like even just hugs and handshakes and like, man, that's, so I'm really enjoying whenever I get those kind of things. Um, online meetings and oh, oh, <laughs> Zoom fatigue, right? Yes. <laughs> no kidding. My goodness, man, that's, it's, it's real. So. It's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. And I was pretty used to Zoom. Like I use Zoom all the time for, uh, like my wife's been using it for coaching and some church training and I teach at Northern uh, Northern has already been doing zoom kind of live streaming teaching for right. several years. And so none of that's like that new, but now it's just like, mm. so, it's, it's just so much. That's really, that's really important too. I think cause a lot of people are learning it for the first time and that can be like having to learn a new skill and also try to cope with your own emotions amidst the pandemic. That can be like a recipe for disaster. And one of the questions you actually did an interview with gravity leadership, which kind of, succinctly asked a question that Brian and I know are being asked this a lot is where is God in the coronavirus pandemic? Can you summarize in a couple of minutes what that conversation was like? Yeah, that's a, yeah, right. Can I? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll try. So, I mean, yeah, people come at it from different kind of, uh, kind of angles. Like why did God do this? Or um, where's God in this? And, And I think kind of the gist that I kind of came to is, um, that's kind of not asking, the questions that the Bible asks. That's not really Mm. the question 
that is, or that's not really the answer that a lot of scripture is pointing us to. It's mostly not why is this happening, but who's with you in it. And that kind of goes back, you know, to the book that I just wrote, but like the answer that the Bible gives us is God is seeking to be with us in all things from the expulsion out of the garden, all the way to new creation. Like God is certainly overcoming our sin problem. Um, and our suffering problem, but he does that by being with us and creating ways mm. to be with us first in the temple and the giving of the law. And then, you know, Jesus taking on flesh and, you know, God dwelling with us. And, mm. and, and so for me, it's, we, it's trying to reframe that question from the why, which is really kind of a, a left brain, um, logical, linear linguistic. Like I want the why I want the answer. I want meaning. I want to create meaning out of this. Right. Um, and really God says, well, you know, those answers will come or maybe they won't come on this side of eternity. But my presence, the, the right brained embodied, um, mm. the visceral, you know, God with us taking on flesh. I, I'm with you in this. I'm with you in the garden. I'm with you in the joy of the wedding of Cana. You know, the highs and the lows like God is with us in all these things. And, and so for me, that's the, um, you know, is God casting out sin, you know, be, because of this? I, I, I don't know. Probably, I hope so, right? I'm always, <laughs> God always wants to get rid of sin, so but right. to send it and all that, like I, I don't know, but um, am I drawing closer to Jesus, um, or am I not? And am I helping my congregation to do that, or or am mm. I not? With this last minute, tell us a little about your podcast, the uh, God with Us podcast that you host with your wife. Tell us about that. Yeah, my wife and I, um, we just felt like she's an excellent writer. I'm like a mediocre writer. And, um, but you know, getting your thoughts out quicker, you know, like, like just like this on the radio and things like that. Um, and so we have the God with us podcast, which is all about finding God in the everyday moments of ordinary life. Mm. Um, the highs and the lows, we really talk about kind of relational and, and kind of brain science. We bring a lot of neuroscience kind of into this. How is the way God made us relationally kind of help us to know how to find him or not. Um, I love so, that. So it's, it's pretty fun. It's kind of taken a hiatus. Uh, we launched our book and then we went on our 20 year anniversary nice. for us. And then the whole <laughs> coronavirus thing happened. And so we've kind of, you know, we're going to restart soon, uh, but it will probably just jump right to season two or something like that. Awesome. I love that, man. Well, you're hearing uh, Dr. Jeff Holtzclaw, who's going to join us for another another segment. We're going to ask him about the book. We're asking about the podcast, pastoring, ministry, and also maybe some of what the future of the church possibly could look like for the rest of us that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is still ian simpkins his is still brian from at least for the rest of the day you can find us if you want on facebook on the common good radio show nope that's not true i was instructed to say you should find us on the facebook page i'm gonna say it with gusto also you should listen to the podcast wherever it is you find fine podcasts and uh we are thrilled to have dr jeff holsclaw who has uh informed us not that kind of doctor just so that we're all clear but also someone that is a great follow on facebook and uh everywhere else online on twitter and you just wrote a book with your wife which i want to ask you about that dynamic in a second but the book title is fascinating. It says, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. Tell us a little bit about the book and why specifically you wrote it. Yeah, well, to get all my cards on the table for a, the topic, maybe at the end of the segment for online church and whether that's the future of the church, right? We, yeah. we really wanted to kind of write a book all about God with us and God's presence with us. But the, the kind of hook was that pastorally, um, I found and this might be blasphemous or it might be the gospel <laughs> to different segments of your listenership. Right. But I've found that telling people that God loves them 
was doing little good work in people's lives. Hmm. That just giving them the straight, hey, God loves you, or God loves you. It's just kind of like it bounced off of them. It was just bouncing off them. And um, for all sorts of reasons um, that we could go into another time, maybe. But, uh, and I kind of shifted to um, this, this sense of like, hey, do you know, like, did you know God really likes you and God right. wants to be with you right now? And hmm. when I told people that, they would lean in and they'd be like, uh, what do you mean? Like, God likes me or God wants to be with you. Yeah, God actually delights to be with us. Like, he he rejoices to be with us all the time. Mm. Mm. Oh, tell me more. And so we right. kind of we wrote this book kind of with this idea of God's offering his presence and um and how his presence transforms us so that and then we can participate in God's purposes. And so the kind of one of the metaphors we use is that God is building a house and is inviting us to live with him. Mm. Uh, but it's it's not like your grandparents' house or like that's that uncle that you don't really know the great uncle who invites you to his house for a party, but doesn't want you to touch anything and you can't go into those rooms. <laughs> right. All right. Sometimes we act like God's like that. Like, yeah, he invited me into his house, but he doesn't want me to touch anything. Mm. And I can't go in those rooms. Cause those are like, Ooh, the, the, the carpet, you know, those carpeted with like the raked carpets and you don't want to. Right. Do right. <laughs> but rather we we're trying to tell a story of like all throughout the Bible, we actually get this picture of a God who invites us to live in his house. Who's excited. He's not some curmudgeon to have us play. And he actually like, Let's us play with all of his stuff. Like he's given mm. us authority and mission to use all of his stuff out in the world. And, and he's mm. excited about that too. And so we just kind of tell um, a lot of personal stories and we go through from Genesis or from yeah Genesis to Revelation. We just kind of tell the story of the Bible in four parts. Mm. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of fun writing it, mostly because I knew from the beginning that my wife was the better writer. So I just kind of <laughs> her. So our marriage has never been stronger. That's, That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> Why do you think so many people uh, have a hard time even grasping or believing that God wants to be with us and that God does uh, want to be near? What, what makes that difficult? Well, we have um, partly it's the conceptions of, of God as kind of this uh, sovereign God who's seeking his own glory in the mm-hmm. world. And he's uh, in control and he kind of lives far away or something like that. Uh, and so we have this, this sense um, a W Tozer said the most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. Yes. Um, yes. but CS Lewis, he, he, he flipped that on his head. He's actually, he said, actually the most important thing about you is knowing what God thinks about you. Mm. And I think that's, that's the kind of difference is we have these conceptions of what God thinks about us. And then our emotions and our response to God kind of follow suit. Uh, mm. and so we talked a lot about um, like Luke 14, which is, you know, the famous story is the, the prodigal son, but there's also the lost coin and the lost sheep. And at the end of all those parables, the punchline is, and all of heaven rejoiced when one sinner turned back. Mm. And, and so we're trying to say, like, God wants to throw a party at all times. He's just waiting for people to come so he can do it. Mm. Uh, and so can we have this sense of God delighting over us? And, um, but a lot of times we can't, and especially in, you know, days and weeks and months like this, where there's so much seriousness going on in the world. Right. It's hard to kind of like name and live into the joy of the gospel that, um, you know, a lot of times I think we, we kind of have this theological idea that being joyful means you're like naive um, mm-hmm. and, and you don't really understand what's the problem with the world. Uh, right. Cause if you did, you'd be a lot more morose and boring. Um, <laughs> and, and it's like, well, I don't really, Jesus kind of didn't live that way, right? He was always getting in trouble because he was having so much fun with sinners. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it was always the boring, morose people that he was calling out, uh, the Pharisees right. and the scribes. Right. right. So, so anyways, so I think there's cultural issues. There's reasons why we can't delight 
uh, or we don't believe God delights in us. Um, so anyways, we're basically the book is all about how God does la- love us, but we just Great. try not to use that, that language much because it doesn't do a lot of work. That's what do you guys think? Yeah. I, well, that's, what's interesting. Cause it feels like sometimes you could almost interpret the religious elite as pointing to Jesus. Like, well, he can't be the Messiah. People actually enjoy him. Like that can't, yeah. right? <laughs> he's getting invited places. So certainly yeah. that rules him out. And, and I think it's so interesting too, that you wrote a book about God's presence because presence has been the thing that's been on everyone's mind right now, whether you're talking about incarnational ministry or embodiment or faithful presence, we're in this new digital landscape and the, the post that we referenced a week or two ago, you were kind of, I mean, you sort of went for it. You're bringing in Kerry Newhoff and Michael Frost and David Fitch. <laughs> and some are saying, holy cow, this is like, this is the reformation the church has needed. And other people are saying, this is going to set us back 25 years. Where do you land right now in the midst of all of this? Are you somewhere in between those predictions or those assessments or what, what's kind of your sense of all this? Yeah. So like I kind of have had this kind of like, urgency welling up in me and kind of writing the book I've written and studying brain science and Mm. just my own pastor. Like I'm all for face-to-face interactions. I believe God has made us for face-to-face interactions. So I'm not a fan of online anything. Okay. And I have teenage sons who have their faces buried in devices all the time. (laughs) Um, But, um, and so I'm kind of like the unlikely champion of online church or live streaming or something like that. But I think for me, a lot of people kind of were so upset, like what's going to happen to the church. And, um, and I think that there's an old paradigm that's kind of in play for people who think that the shift to online church is the best thing ever. Mm. And to those who feel like this is the worst thing ever. Um, I think there's an old kind of what I'd call maybe a broadcast paradigm that we probably need to get over and understand that digital natives kind of have a more interactive kind of approach to being online. So like, I think through, like the evangelical kind of innovation with um, broadcast tools, you have like the the great awakening and you have open yeah. air preaching, you have big tent revivals in the second great awakening, you know, around the civil war before and after. Then you have like the introduction of the radio and how evangelicals always kind of jumped on the radio and then television to use these tools to kind of get the message out. Right. You know, and so that's, that's good and bad. And I'm sure there's mixed results. And then the mega church kind of, kind of, you know, came in with the, the the television and things like that. And so certainly a lot of churches are using live streaming technologies just basically to take their Sunday morning service and to project broadcast it one way. Um, Hmm. But I think the best use of the live streaming um, kind of situation is not to do that. It's rather to create like a more interactive experience. Uh, And I think you can still do that even if it's a one way kind of a broadcast, like using Facebook comments or using Zoom and chats and things like that. Like there's a way to be much more interactive. And I think a lot of digital natives, you know, like my teenage sons, that they use online both ways. Like they use it just right. as a consumer. And that's where I think a lot of people are, oh, this is just consumerism. Like, you know, the church is always falling into consumerism and we need real discipleship. That's what the missional people would say. Hmm. I'd say, yes, like online church can be consumeristic, certainly. But the technology is actually fast enough and the bandwidth is there that it's actually interactive. It, it, it is actual two-way connection if you hmm. do it right. And I think sometimes the people who feel like this is setting us back too far um, forget that there's a, the interactive, you know, whether it's Snapchat or whether it's, you know, Zoom or whether it's um, Facebook Live with comments and these, like there's all sorts of ways of making it interactive. Right. And the churches that can move more into that space are going to be creating bridges and lifelines for people um, rather than just 
uh, broadcasting a prepackaged yeah. kind of thing, which isn't necessarily bad, but that's right. I don't right. think that's great. So, so those are kind of, the, I think the, the, the balancing between connection and consuming, hmm. I feel sometimes gets lost. And, and even those who think online church and the broadcasting thing is great and we need to adapt to it. I think they probably even forget the connection piece. And that's why I called out the, and I'm not a big, okay, boomer kind of guy at all. <laughs> especially we're all about the same age, I think. So especially when my own kids say, okay, boomer to me, and I want to blow it. Cause I'm like, I am not right. anyway, <laughs> that so, is not but me. in this one case, it kind of fit because it was a lot of, you know, 60, you know, year olds who were sorry to get all generational angry, but, um, <laughs> you know, and so I think that they're, I think they're just not giving as much interactive cr- connection, um, there. So yeah. So there, anyways, so that's kind of what I'm feeling right now. That's good. That's, that's really good, man. I can't encourage you guys enough. Jeff just wrote a book called does God really like me discovering the God who wants to be with us. He co-wrote that with his wife. You can also learn more at jeffreyholsclaw.net or Jeff Holsclaw on Twitter. Can't encourage you enough, Jeff. Uh, I'm just going to say it. I'm grateful for you and your influence and you're one of my favorite followers online. So thanks for saying what you're saying, thinking what you're thinking and doing what you're doing. We really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's our pleasure. We'd Absolutely. love to have you back on sometime. Yeah, let's do it. Count me in, man. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to That Common Good. That Common Good? Did you hear that? that? Com- Not this Common Good, but that Common Good over you there. You lost that Common Good. <laughs> Whoa, that oh boy, that might be the first time I've sang on the show. Please keep going. Hopefully, no, hopefully it is the last. You've actually sang a couple of times, actually, haven't you? I have. Yeah, yeah. That's not a, it, and it's not a good idea. <laughs> no, I disagree. I think you have a great singing voice, Brian. Thank you. Thank uh, you. That music. Oh, that's what I was thinking. I was jumping the gun in my head. The common good. That music strikes fear in the hearts of some, joy in the hearts of others, but it means. The end of the show is here, which also means interweb insanity and that stories that we have not read, sound effects we have not heard. They are selected for us by our producers, and we continue to subject ourselves to this segment for whatever reason. I'm not entirely sure why. And I'm going to ask Brian Fromm to kick us off. The first one is out of Puerto Rico. Giant asteroid flying by Earth next week looks like it's wearing a face mask. (laughs) (laughs) An asteroid estimated to be 1.2 miles wide will fly by Earth next week, but it's not expected to collide with our planet, thankfully. Uh, And if, if an asteroid could be aware of such things, it appears to be wearing a face mask in deference to the pandemic, according to new images from the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Uh, on April 29th, it will pass 3,908,791 miles of Earth uh, within that many miles of Earth, moving at 19,461 miles per hour. That's still 16 times farther than the distance between the Earth and the moon. Wow. What is this thing? It's an asteroid, sir. How big are we talking? Sir, our best estimate is 97.6 billion. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. Y- y- yes, sir. Dan, we didn't see this thing coming. Well, our object collision budget's a million dollars. That allows us to track about 3% of the sky. And begging your pardon, sir, but it's a big sky. That's pretty funny. I uh, did not expect to laugh that hard at that one. Okay. That was good. That was good. Right, this, oh, this one's, one's right, this one's my, right my, down your alley right here. Right. My home state, Michigan, America's high five. Well, I guess we can't high five right now. America's, <laughs> America's social distancing wave. Um, the headline <laughs> reads, Eminem thanks Detroit hospital workers with 
mom spaghetti. That is amazing. Oh, I hope that's the drop. As some Detroit hospital workers are thanking M&M for sending them, quote, mom spaghetti. The food was given to employees on the front lines fighting against the coronavirus pandemic at Henry Ford Health System, according to thank you messages posted on his Twitter and Instagram pages. Our healthcare heroes lost themselves in the delicious mom spaghetti donated by, by Detroit's very own M&M. Thank you for providing a special meal for our team members. Detroit is the hardest hit area in Michigan for COVID-19 cases and deaths and has also been one of the hot spots for the virus in the country. City leaders reported 87 new deaths on Tuesday after reporting 23 and 29 in the two days prior. Mayor Dugan says uh, backlog cases are to blame for the increase and says cases in Detroit have plateaued in recent days. And see the rest of the... Okay, I'm going to get back to the good stuff. Uh, it's not known who made the mom spaghetti for the Henry Ford employees, and Eminem hasn't confirmed that it came from him. <laughs> mom spaghetti is part of a lyric, and I'm not even going to explain this. Uh, Eminem also used mom spaghetti back in 2017 when he opened a pop-up shop in downtown Detroit for a few days, selling all kinds of clothing. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom spaghetti. The next one is out of England. A uh, hotel worker runs full marathon through the halls. Man, yesterday we had the guy running around the bed. Now it's through the halls. Oh, golly. A British hotel worker is seeking Guinness World Records recognition after she ran the length of a full marathon through the halls of the closed business. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Louise Casey, age 40, said the premiere in Warrington Central North in Warrington, England, has been closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. But she and a handful of other staff have still been coming in each night to maintain the facility. Casey, a member of the Witness uh, Running Club, decided to run a marathon inside the hotel. She said it took her more than 300 laps to reach the 26.2-mile length of a full marathon, and she finished her run with a time of four hours and 37 minutes. Because of the virus, a lot of people in the club are running around in circles in their gardens, Casey said. I thought to myself, I might try to run a marathon indoors at work. Wow. Are you insane? Again, I don't love running in the first place, but the monotony of like around your bed or in a hallway just feels maddening to me awful all right this one's out of colorado woman's phone ringing off the hook due to coronavirus confusion huh a denver woman says her cell phone has recently been bombarded with calls from strangers doriana fontanella's number is just one digit off from the state's fax number for the department of labor and employment she says (laughs) she's been inundated by calls over the past several weeks as people are accidentally dialing her number instead i thought there's a real need out there and I needed to let people know that I'm not the one they want, Fontanella said, as she explained why she contacted Fox 31. Fontanella tells the problem solvers that actually all began more than a decade ago in 2008. Her phone would ring and she would answer, only to hear the unmistakable tone of a fax machine. She says the problem grew worse during the historic 2013 floods in Colorado. People were calling her number almost daily, presumably trying to fax materials to the Department of Labor for unemployment claims. Ahoy, ahoy. No, you have the wrong number. This is 5246. I suspect you need more practice working your telephone machine. All right, last one, and I'm not sure we're ending in a good way. You can decide oh, that. boy. Last one's out of Paraguay. Woman wakes up in body bag after Doc declares her dead. That's a nightmare. One woman in Paraguay is still alive despite being declared dead. Local media reports said Gladys Duarte, who's an ovarian cancer patient, visited a local hospital with increasingly high blood pressure. A couple of hours later, the overseeing doctor told her husband and daughter that she had died. 
Gladys was transported to a funeral home in a body bag where employees noticed that she was moving inside. Oh, my gosh. Staff found that she was awake inside of the bag and had her taken to the medical facility. Her family members say the hospital doctor barely checked her pulse and did not even try to revive her. Her current condition is unknown. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't. Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Yeah, current condition other than scarred for life. <laughs> Terrified. Are you kidding me? That's how do you awful. Ever, how do you ever get in a sleeping bag ever again after that? <laughs> That's There's a no terrible way. There's no way. Well, you're not wrong. We ended on a weird note, and that is the risk of doing this segment, and we're going to do it again (laughs) every day next week like we always do. We hope you'll join us from 4 to 6 p.m. every day or on the podcast. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.